Welcome to Tag Talks Happy Hour with Ajit Kara. One part small talk, all parts real talk. This is the part of the day when Ajit gets to know the people behind the job titles at Tag. Hello, my name's Ajit Kara. I'm the CEO of Tag Americas. Welcome to Ajit Kara's Happy Hour. I decided to do this kind of series of podcasts because many folks will have heard me say, I believe Tag, which is the company that I work for, has the best people in the world. It's its biggest asset. And these series of podcasts are really to understand a little bit more about the folks that work here, understand what makes them tick, and spend some quality time with them. I'm delighted today to welcome Carl Faby. He's the Senior Director of Creative Services. Kyle? Welcome to Ajit's Happy Hour. Thank you, Ajit. You do realize that you've bucked the system then. So, so far I've been having wine and you're the first person that says, nope, I want a beer. I'd have it no other way. Thank you. How is the beer? All good? Delicious. Still bringing Samuel Adams in. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kyle. Yes. Tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, basically Bayside, North Flushing. It's the northeastern furthest point of Queens, right under the Throgs Neck Bridge, right on the Bay Area, on the water. Grew up with my mom, my sister, and with my grandparents. We were very lucky coming from my mother and father divorced when we were young. And we were lucky enough to have my grandparents who were still around. They helped raise while my mother worked a tail off on the floor of the stock exchange. Wow. In those days, that must have been pretty impressive. Extremely impressive because I think when I was younger, it was a very man industry or gentleman industry. I wouldn't say gentleman, but uh, it was a very um, male-oriented industry. And to watch my mother have senior leadership role working on the floor of the stock exchange. It was amazing. It really was. And to have my grandparents around, which was good, to have another generation, their input in our upbringing was so amazing. You know. So tell me a bit more about, you mentioned a couple of times your grandparents and they were at home, and you were one of these lucky folks that when my kids were growing up, we were quite close geographically to my parents. And when we moved away, they still insisted on my kids going there every weekend. And so my kids have an amazing relationship with the grandparents, and my father's no longer with us now. But I get the sense that growing up with your grandparents, they're pretty important to you. And talk about more the influence that they had and how it was at home. You know what? It's amazing you said. I mean, we were very lucky because I think my grandfather, who basically, like I said, you know, my mother and father were divorced when I was young. So my grandfather pretty much raised me. Yeah, he was my father figure. He was just an amazing man. He was from the greatest generation, World War II. Very quiet man, a very shy kind of guy, but yet still held himself. He served, didn't he? So, yes, yeah. he served. He was in the Fifth Army. He landed in Anzio in Italy, which we didn't find out a lot of this till later on. Like, he never spoke of it. I've heard this with people before, that the best generation, as you put it, and folks that had served in the war, they didn't talk about it a lot. I've heard this quite a lot of times, and people find out, post it, and after it, and so... Man, but later in life, when he was head guard at the New York Stock Exchange, how my mother got introduced into that industry... He would be the guy that would come home at night and say, shake the hand that shook the hand of the president today. Key things like that, whether it was Nixon or Ford that came in or Reagan, he was that lead guy with security, which was nice. So he was just such a a tall, inspiring, but gentle giant. I learned so much from him in the way of how to be resourceful, how not to waste. He grew up through the Depression. So we got a lot of good from there. But there was negative stuff, too, as if you're looking in today, how we're progressing and stuff. There was, I don't want to say a bit of, how do I say this the right way? There was a bit of prejudice that was there with my grandfather, different generation, what it was from. And it doesn't make it wrong. I think it's how he was raised in a sense when you look at it and learning from that, where he may have used certain innuendos or certain things that you wouldn't dare say today, 
But yet some of those same things were some of the greatest attributes in his life, meaning like the relationships he had with people. So we were so lucky. Like when you're able to spend that quality time with your grandparents, not just your parents. Do you think that it informed you? Because, you know, my observation of you is that you're an incredibly upbeat, positive, energetic, focus on the right things kind of guy. Does that come from your grandparents? It does come from my grandparents. To be fair, my mother worked two jobs. That's real work ethic, that, isn't it? It was work ethic, and that's, I think, where I get it from. Well, you struggled to do half a job, but let's not go down that path. <laughs> we won't go down that path just yet. <laughs> but uh, yes. <laughs> but to be fair, yeah, I think the work ethic came from them, from my mother and my grandfather. Yeah. He never sat around like there was never a day where he wasn't doing something. Sure. Where today I think we can get so caught up in, yeah. whether it be social media or television or news, where he didn't get caught up. He read a newspaper which is a thing of the past, if anybody knows what a newspaper is anymore. But he read his newspaper. You get the brown ink on your Get the brown ink on your fingers, exactly. He would read a newspaper every day. It was like certain sections. He never went through the whole... See, but he, he went through something that I've always envied, and it kind of went away. I know it's still there, but I couldn't pull it off. But I loved the images of men in workplace, and they would have hats. Yeah. Coats, and the hats. trains. Well, I have a coat. but <laughs> No, but I mean a coat, a proper coat. You know what I'm saying? Like a proper coat, like a nice wool coat. Uh, no, I understand. But yeah. there's the hat. I've had briefcases when I started work. There was briefcases, still cool. But I've never actually owned a hat. I would like to wear a hat. But I think because I'm a short person, I don't think I could pull it off. But I would like those days when men would walk down the street with a hat. It's amazing you say that because it just brings me back to my grandfather had three hats. Which you said, he had his old Irish cabbie cap that he wore on the weekends when he was doing stuff. And then he had his event hat in a hat box. My grandmother had hat boxes a little bit. He had that one hat with the little feather off to the side. You know, really nice. That was if we were going to communions or weddings or something that he wore. And then he just had his hat every day he wore to and from work. And being that he worked on the floor of the stock exchange, he had uniform. They were cut awful. They were these awful green with a mint green shirt and a black tie but he would dress and i never forget this about the tune i think we've lost something in that he would get dressed every day to go put on a uniform and then get dressed back and i mean shirt tie pants his coat his hat i think it looks amazing we see some blokes wear it around manhattan today some do I think they're ultimately so cool. I wish I could pull that off. I think you can pull that off. I think you're selling yourself (laughs) short. No pun intended, but I think you're selling yourself short. (laughs) So back to Italy. Yes. Where your grandfather landed. Did you ever go and visit to see where your granddad did amazing things? I never got to Anzio. I've done tons of World War II tours. I've done all the beaches in Normandy. I've been to Churchill's Bunker. I've done Dachau. I've gone to Italy on my honeymoon. But, but essentially, a quiet Second World War buff then. Yes. Love it. It was kind of, I originally went to school to be a history buff. It was so funny. If you remember when cable first really came out, it was like the History Channel was the new channel in the early 90s. And when I was going to school, no one really knows, I think, what you really are going to go to college for coming out of high school. And I was just so impressed with the History Channel because it was watching all those old documentaries, all that stuff that I loved. And I wanted to be one of those experts that could speak to a specific battle, you know, whether it be in Arnhem or be Normandy or wherever it was. So I went as a history major. Oh, wow. And then through the schooling and stuff, you know, you have to take all these math and all these other classes that really you're not interested in, but they're part of the curriculum, that it became more of a hobby history than actually what I wanted to do. You know, you mentioned obviously they're the greatest generation, but what was your takeaway from when you went to all of these locations and you studied? What did you take away from studying that? How did it impact you? Great question. I mean, I think it impacted me too because I think history at times repeats itself. 
And I think it makes me nervous that students today might not be learning in detail what happened then and how not to let that happen again. But what I took away from it was to look at how the world was at war. It was a brutal, awful time, but so much good came out of it. And so many people who put their ultimate sacrifice is what they did and how they did it and didn't like it was no rhyme or reason. It was funny. My grandfather worked for Brooklyn Union Gas and was laid off probably about three months right before the war started. And him and a bunch of all his buddies who were laid off, they literally just went and enlisted. They signed up because they were like, hey, it's only a matter of time. By signing up freely, you were able actually to pick where and what you could do as opposed to just being the cannon fodder to fill roles. So I think there's a little bit of smarts there in a sense and kind of seeing what's coming. But at the end of it, I'm one of those people that doesn't want to see history or things get scrubbed away or lost because I think there's so much to learn from it as we progress and move forward. I totally understand that. And did you say you went to Bergkammer, the concentration camp? We went to Dachau. Dachau. In Germany. Okay. Dachau, which I think to experience it, you have to experience, and I can say the good because I don't think there's any good in war, but when you see these beautiful cemeteries that are in honor of the fallen, but you have to see the other side and both sides of the story to really appreciate what went on and how and the views. And Yeah, I did visit Auschwitz and that still haunts me to this day. And I personally think that everyone should go because I think it teaches you when you see the cruelty that mankind can commit to other mankind and folks, it's just beyond. We're seeing it again today, which is frightening. It It really is. It is frightening. But then on to lighter things, because it's lighter. Please. you You took all of that and you went and joined the reservists. Now, the reason I said it's lighter, I'd like to see you in a uniform. Yes, I will bring you actually my graduation <laughs> pictures and some stuff. I'll bring the photos in. But yes, I actually, when I was in college, I joined because there was something I always wanted to be a soldier. I guess even though my mother and father were separate, my father was at the tail end of Vietnam. Um, my grandfather, of course, served in World War II. And there was always something about watching all those classic John <laughs> movies. There was something that was romantic about it and just something that was manly about it. So I went and joined the reserves when I was in college. I spent eight years in the reserves. The funny story was when I joined, it was peacetime, you know? So you have to take an ASVAB test, and then that test tells you what you qualify for. So I qualified for over 200 jobs that I can do in the military. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. When you think about it, like I couldn't fly helicopters or I couldn't be part of chemical warfare, which might have been for the best. But uh, <laughs> but uh, what they wound up doing was they were, I saw something called the fire support specialist. And I was young. I'm 21. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'll, I'll be a fireman in the Army. No, no, no. So artillery. <laughs> so basically, I wound up being a scout for the artillery. I was based out of Fort Tilden, Far Rockaway, which is where my unit was. I think the combat life expectancy of my MOS at the time was like 13 minutes in combat. But there was no wars going on, so there was nothing to really worry about. The Gulf War had just ended, which had kind of pushed me into being in the reserves. And just one of those things where I remember getting home, my mother looked at me and going, you did what? She goes, oh, you couldn't just be like somebody that was an engineer or something? I'm like, no, no. I said, mom, and it gave me a $4,000 signing bonus. The interesting is before I knew any of this about you, I wonder if that experience, your grandfather's experience, informed you. Because I used to call you head of SWAT, SWAT, if you remember, when there was a problem and a crisis. SWAT team. SWAT team led by you would go in. And I wonder if that's informed how you outlook and how you position yourself. Well, maybe a little, I think, because the military has this very rush, rush, wait mentality, but there's always planning for something. So I think I did pick up a bit of that. I think it's helped me from an organizational standpoint. It's got me thinking one or two moves past the exact mission or whatever that's going on at that point. I remember when we were talking about Amgen and you pulled me into your office and you're like, hey, we need you to help with something. And you go, I'm like, yeah, no problem. But is it okay if I just kind of do it my way? He kind of like sneered at me at first and said, 
okay, I trust you, go for it. But yeah, we just need this done. And I would definitely say there's a bit of that military background and that training that has helped me quite a bit in my professional life. Yeah. And so hobby-wise, I know you're a big family man. I know you care deeply about your family. Yes, absolutely. Tell me a bit more about your hobbies. What do you do to occupy them and you? Wow. Well, it's now my two sons, Owen and Jake. They've just turned 10 and 7. So yeah, I was a late bloomer. So yeah, they've got me going. I just coached Owen's basketball team, CYO in the fall. Are you an angry coach, an encouraging coach, or demanding coach? Yes. Um, yes. Nice. Yes. Um, it depends on the situation. But yeah, I think there's a little bit of everything in there. To be a good coach, I think you need a little bit of all of that. You can't make everybody happy, which I've learned. Yeah. Especially when you're coming out of the two years of a pandemic, half these kids haven't picked up a basketball in two years. And now you got to go back to the basics from when they were five just to teach them to dribble again. Yeah. So it's frustrating. And it's funny, I never saw you as a basketball. I could see you as most other sports, but how can I put this delicately? You're not the tallest of people that I know. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> not that it should present anyone from not playing basketball. But. You know, actually, it's funny. I played basketball in high school. I played really? varsity B. Yeah, I played varsity oh. B in high school, if you can believe it. Not looking at me now, but I was an athlete. I played football. I ran track. And I played basketball. And I'll show you those pictures, too, because there is a thinner side of me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I play basketball. I enjoy basketball. I enjoy all sports, to be fair. I really do. I play a lot of pickleball now, which is another thing I do regularly. I have a question around that. What is pickleball? <laughs> now, it could be my total lack of looking at my surroundings or I'm an ignorant kind of guy, but I don't know what pickleball is. Pickleball's actually been around for quite a long time, really? mostly on the West Coast and down South. The best way to put it is the cross between tennis and ping pong mm -hmm. at the same time. How do you cross tennis and ping pong? Yeah, it's tennis and ping pong <laughs> is how you cross it. You play on a shortened tennis court right. with the rules of ping pong. So it's usually two on twos is what you're doing. Is that a net? There's a net. It's a little bit shorter, almost half the size of a regular tennis net. Right. You're playing with a wiffle ball. Have you ever seen wiffle ball, which is the yellow bat with the little plastic ball with the holes in it yeah. that kids yeah. play with? It's somewhat of a ball like it's that. It's like a slower ball as well. Oh, no, it moves pretty fast. Does you can it? hit this thing, and you're using a fiberglass kind of paddle that you're playing with, and it gets pretty intense. It sounds to me like a cop-out, doesn't it? It's not tennis. It's not table tennis. It's not table tennis. You're on just a smaller tennis court. There's a strategy to the game, which I think I like which is part of the military and everything too with the strategy. Yeah, yeah. But it's just during the pandemic, I now work except one day a week, 11 feet from where I sleep. Yeah. So it's a nice way to just get out and get some good exercise. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So you've collected some interesting things. I know you like to collect things. I see it when, when we used to have desks, many desks, et cetera. What's your most prized possession? Actually, one of my most prized is, is uh, an artillery shell. I have that we got in France. Back to the war. Yeah, but it's World War One, actually, not World uh, War Two. World War One. It was World War One. About seven or eight years ago, myself and a few of the colleagues, we all went over to the London office and we were working. And then myself and gentleman Nick that we worked with at the time took a couple of days vacation. And he wanted to introduce me. He knew I was a big World War Two buff. He's like, "Hey, have you ever done any reading on World War One?" And we went to Passchendaele and Vimy Ridge and to all these places and. Again, I hate to say it, they are beautiful. Some of the cemeteries, some of the most somber, beautiful places that are kept very pristine. And you have to drive, though, around these farmland. You have to drive for hours, like in a loop, yeah. to get there. But they're still digging up stuff because World War I was A, longer, and B, it was a war of attrition with trenches and everything was buried. Farmers today are still digging up stuff. Yeah. So we actually parked at a cemetery, I think it was called Nine Pines, which was an Australian cemetery. 
what we did is you had to walk along this farmland to get to the cemetery. And while we were there, I looked down and there was like this metal cylinder kind of piece there. And I first thought it was a pipe just kind of sticking out. Just, and Just because to put the earth turns. Just the earth turns. It's because farmers are just cultivating and doing whatever they're doing. And I saw it and I looked at it and I called Nick over. I was like, hey, you know, what is that? He goes, what do you think that is? And I literally started digging around it because the funny thing is, it's not funny, but the kind of real part of it is they have these red bins surrounding all the farmlands. When you dig up stuff, you're supposed to put them in those bins and actually the government comes and picks it all up. Because they want to... They want to make sure it's disposed of properly, God forbid. And I found this thing and I was like, oh, wow. And I began to pull it out. It was really heavy. It was brown and... You could tell it was old. How big was it? Uh, it was probably about two and a half feet. So it's not a bullet. It's a proper shell. Oh, no, it's a shell. It's a proper shell. And then the only reason that I realized what it was is there's a braiding at the bottom of it, which is actually, this was the physical shell that landed and exploded. And the braiding is where, I guess, the canister of the gunpowder would be. So after doing, of course, Google and searching and everything, it was amazing how we even got it home. It's over 100 years old. It's history. Carl, this has been fabulous. Absolutely. This is the time where you may ask me a question or two. Ah, excellent. And I love that. And I actually put a lot of thought into this too, because I did. No, I actually did. When Kaylee was nice enough to send the itinerary, I was like, let me think about this. And it's about knowing you professionally and a little bit personally, which we've been able to do is there was a trip we took out when we did a pitch on the West Coast. Yes. About five, six years ago. And there was one piece I got from that is your love for cars. Yes. Right. So from my perspective, I'd love to know is A, what is the fastest you've ever driven? Right. <laughs> and what car was that? Okay. And second is what is the most expensive car you've ever been in and been behind the wheel of? Good questions, because I do love cars. So I think the fastest that I've been in is probably around about 140-ish miles an hour. So it's not hugely fast because on tracks today, they don't allow you to go, you know, there's enough bends and circuits and so you can't get up to the speed. I'm not good enough to do more. I obviously, from a sensible perspective, would never do that on the public roads. Absolutely. So I think it was about 140-ish and it was in a 911 that I did that in, a Porsche 911. And the most expensive car that I've been in was probably on a track in the UK when it was half Goodwood. And actually there's two. I did go around the circuit in a classic Aston Martin DB4, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. And because on the grounds, they also built the Rolls-Royce Phantom. So I had a ride in one of those. Oh, nice. So those are my car stories. Yeah. No, and it's the one thing that I've actually, which was great. I remember having lunch with you one day and talking about it and saying, oh, did you see the car I rented? And oh, and this, and I got this car at home. And yeah. it's always something I don't think I've ever been able to really sit and have a real chat with you. But Like you love the Second World War. I love everything about automobiles. It's fascinating for those who haven't done it. On the Discovery Channels on TV, they have a series of what made America great. And there's the history of the car manufacturers and how... They were all built up, Ford and... Ford, Chevy, Chrysler, Jeeps. It's just astonishing reliving of history of how we've got to where we are today. It's actually fascinating. Awesome. So thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Kyle, it's been fabulous. I can see clearly that the reason that you're Mr. SWAT, you've got a fabulous, curious mind around the major parts of what made a lot of us great today. We wouldn't have the freedoms in our part of the world if we didn't go through the Second World War and the First World War. And I think... It shows in how you approach life in terms of your work, your family commitments, your general passion. And so thank you for being part of our business. Thank you for sharing your stories and the passion that you have for your family and your grandparents specifically. But um, thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Ajit. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Join us soon for another episode of Tech Talks Happy Hour with Ajit Kara and learn more about the people behind the job titles at Tag. Thank you.